0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things karma and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kens, and today, Lindsay Pools and I will be joined by Sam as we conclude our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters 1 and 2 of Part 5, as well as the epilogue. As always, please be aware that our discussion of The Cuckoo's Calling, obviously, will reference the ending of this book, as well as subsequent books in the series, up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get started, let's get into some Troubled Blood casting news. So on June 7th, we finally received confirmation that Jess Impiazzi is playing the young version of Gloria Conti, which is great casting in my opinion. She definitely reminds me of a younger version of Sherry Lungi.
1: Her name's been out there for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I'm really happy that they're doing these flashback scenes, but I guess it kind of makes me curious why casting seems to be such a big secret. I mean, I wonder if this is just normal or if there's a reason why they don't want to give a full list, but it's probably just my impatience and wanting to find answers that I can't find. Yeah.
2: It kind of feels like there were lots and lots of cast names and releases all in one go and it really slowed up. This has been the first one for what seems like quite a long time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well it's just that they gave a list of names but they won't say who they are. Yeah. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. But I do have a couple of other things I want to go over. So first we have to talk about JK Rowling updating her Twitter header the other day. Of course. We have yes. to. <laughs> it's another shot of Highgate Cemetery. Although this time, there are a few graves shown and the one that everyone seems to be focusing on is Mary Emden's grave, and it's Mm -hmm. called the empty chair. And I did see a lot of people start talking about this but the first person to send it to us was a listener named Michelle on Twitter, and she sent us this article about Mary Emden so she was a young actress who died at 19 and her husband was an architect who designed this empty chair. I also found a really interesting blog post that I'll link to called shadows fly away that talks about the symbolism of an empty chair being used for someone who has died young, which goes along with the one thing that we do know about the ink black heart, that it involves a younger demographic. So possibly we're going to have a young victim.
3: Yeah. I think a young victim is totally possible. And um, one other thing I saw, so Mary Emden was a singer um, as well, right? So yeah. I know that everyone's been wanting a mystery set in the music world. What if a mm. young musician was murdered? Yeah. And I just realized that I'm describing the younger Rugby brother, Eddie, who has his own band. So oh. rest in peace, Eddie, I guess. <laughs> That would be a way to get Strike drawn into the mystery and bring the rugby stuff in, right? If Eddie was murdered? Yeah, I'm generally not a fan of the
1: theorizing that someone from Strike's past is going to need their help or Robin's because I think it's done a lot and it's yeah. usually kind of unbelievable to me, but that one.
2: Yeah, I like the sound of that.
1: If Joe did
3: this, I think she'd do it really well just because she does everything really well. Oh yeah, of course.
1: This blog post also had a poem by Richard Coe Jr. called The Vacant Chair. And I'll just read part of it. Little Mary, bright and blessed, early sought her heavenly rest. Oft we see her in our dreams, then an angel one she seems, but we oftener see her where stands unfilled the vacant chair. So that feels kind of significant that her name is also Mary. And I also found that there's a song by Sting called The Empty Chair. (laughs) I mean, just maybe we'll see some of these references in the book, if in fact it does have to do with someone who died young.
3: Maybe. Keep trying to think of why the vacant chair sounds like it's already been a novel, but I realized I was thinking of the casual vacancy. Oh it's not the yeah. same thing. It's a different <laughs> yeah, that's thing. What I thought. No, yeah. but yeah, yeah, that does make sense.
1: <laughs> no. I don't know if it's enough to say epigraphs with these references, the poem and, and the song, but I guess it depends on if she uses a single source for that. Yeah. Oh God. I hope her next header is an epigraph clue in the same way that the fairy queen. I want an epigraph clue. We
3: haven't had enough headers related
1: to ink black heart. I need more. Me too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been waking up every morning thinking that I'm going to wake up to some announcement that's saying, (laughs) oh, we've got, you know, ink black heart. Here's the cover and the blurb and all that other kind of stuff. Because that happened at like six in the morning. I think last time I woke up. I got a
1: little tweet alert and it was there. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I get notifications when the Robert Galbraith account tweets. And mm-hmm. so when I wake up to one, I'm like, oh, this going to be, <laughs> what's it going to be? Yeah. <laughs> and feel like and usually Galbraith it's nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like
0: submit your photos for this. You know, that's yeah. not what we want. Yeah.
1: But how do you think this ties in with the George Womwell grave and the lion? Do you think that we should be focusing on these individual graves and their stories, or are we meant to focus on the actual location? I've heard that these are both in the same area, so I think it's safe to guess that there's going to be a scene there, and we'll get to see both of these.
3: Yeah, I think the safest bet is that Highgate Cemetery is, is somewhere that will be going at some point in the novel. And I am so curious as to what they could actually be doing there. Yeah. I saw someone on Reddit stress that it would be an awesome place to find a body, and I'm like, oh, oh it so would be. Like, what if there's a body yeah. discovered sitting in that empty chair, like oh. draped across it? Right. be oh. so sounds cool. So creepy. You, it yes. Awesome. Super
2: creepy. Right concept.
3: Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Creepy. Yeah, I know. That's why it's great. <laughs> I know, I, and I agree with you. I know. <laughs> Just- be awesome if it was drained of blood and they were like the Highgate vampire. vampire. I know that, that won't happen because yeah. that's silly, but
1: Strike is like, I've had enough of this, <laughs> we're not going into the vampire. Yeah, Strike has been
3: tested to his <laughs> limits with the astrology. He cannot have vampires, <laughs> he can't do it.
1: No. I would love it if Robin brings it up and was like, Oh, what do you think? and he just looks at her like, Stop it right now.
3: <laughs> is Robin the right age to have had a bit of a twilight phase or? <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably robin is one year older than i am i did read them but i was a little bit older so maybe not yeah okay anyway i still think it's possible that george Woomwell's grave could tie in with all of those lion references that we got in trouble blood so mm-hmm. maybe it's not the story but just seeing another lion you know mm-hmm. maybe his grave is relevant in that way and that the other one ties to a younger death
3: maybe yeah. I think that's possible. We need a synopsis
1: so we can find out. Yeah, I
3: know. <laughs> Hurry
1: up. <laughs> okay. There's something else I want to bring up. That's really exciting for me. And it's going back to what we talked about last time with the tube ticket on the Robert Galbraith site. First of all, thank you so much to Twin Haven on Twitter for not making me feel totally stupid when telling me that I probably just needed to zoom out on my browser to see the full ticket because that's what it was I guess it takes away stop laughing I hear you laughing.
3: not uh, <laughs> why would I laugh at you
1: I guess it takes away some of the mystery of it being hidden but I think the theory is still reasonable right yeah but the main thing I wanted to mention is there was a group of strike fans that got together a few weeks ago and went on a bit of a strike tour which looked like a lot of fun I wish I could have gone but they probably would have had to wheel me around in a wheelbarrow at this point <laughs> But they visited St. Giles Church. And if you remember, that's the church that's right off of Denmark Street. And we talked about the possibility of Strike and Robin getting married
3: there. I'm really invested in that. All right.
1: Well, what's so interesting here is that one of our friends on the Strike tour told us that the man at the little pop-up coffee shop that's inside the courtyard told them that about five years ago, J.K. Rowling spent ages there. Um, Here's what he said. According to our friend, I'm not very good with recognizing famous people, but she stood out because she was sitting on a bench for a very, very long time talking really deeply with her assistant. It was very memorable. And assistant is in quotes because I'm assuming he's not completely sure of who the other person was, but five years ago was 2017. If I can do math.
4: (laughs) I I feel like
3: that's good news. Yeah. I think that it is basically 100% confirmation of our theory. (laughs) Oh, of course. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I really hope that she was scouting that out as a ceremony location because that would be just super cute. So cute because
1: we haven't seen it at all. Yeah. I try not to take these kinds of theories too seriously because Mm -hmm. I really feel like putting so much hope into something that doesn't have a ton of evidence can lead to disappointment or unrealistic expectations right but this still feels fun and exciting Mm -hmm. and of course there's a possibility that she was going to use this location in an earlier book and chose not to it could also support the argument that the ticket is just from that visit but spending a lot of time there makes me think that this is or was a location of interest to her so it is now a location of interest to me
4: yeah
0: same all right we are going to start with part five and with a new part comes a new epigraph, which is very exciting. So this one is from book two of Georgics by Virgil. And the epigraph goes, lucky is he who has been able to understand the causes of things. How appropriate is this epigraph for the last two chapters where we finally learn who killed Lula? Super
1: appropriate. Yeah, it's very straightforward. And I like it in contrast with the last epigraph that speaks of profiting off the folly of others, because it's not just that Strike benefits from other people being foolish, but because he's someone who can find the answers. So it it speaks to Strike's abilities, right? And I also like that it's telling us that we're finally here at the end where those things will all be explained to us. Yeah, we're the lucky ones. So chapter one, Strike speaks with Wardle and Robin. The chapter opens with Strike and Wardle having
0: met up in the Feathers pub with Lula's pilfered will.
2: They always seem to meet up in pubs or restaurants or cafes. Maybe one day it will be dinner r- drinks at their flats.
3: For Strike and Wardle, are you, you rooting for a bromance there?
1: Because
3: <laughs> I, I don't know. I think you might be out of luck, but it can have a bromance. Yeah. Although I
1: would prefer a bromance between Strike and Max. Same, mm-hmm. same, yeah. Big same, yeah,
4: yeah.
0: I yeah. love
1: Max. I like Max a lot.
0: <laughs> I am laughing at Strike's response when Wardle wonders why he's not letting Bristow know that he has the will. Of course, he doesn't want to let Bristow know that he has it just yet.
1: It's also strange because I'm assuming that Strike told Wardle where he found it. I mean, does Wardle not realize that that makes Bristow a suspect?
3: Yeah, I don't see how Strike can tell him that he needs a warrant for a vet safe without telling him who he suspects or what he thinks he'll find there. I don't know. I think that as great as Jo is, and I love her writing, the keep it secret till the very end bit of this book is just, it's slightly clumsier than the same bit in the later books. Or I guess I should say rather that she gets way better at hiding the truth from us in a plausible way as she gets practice with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, him not wanting to tell Bristow, it has a big pang of Miss Marple about it all in terms of revealing all the facts with all the suspects in the drawing room kind of thing. (laughs)
3: Strike needs a drawing room. He does need a drawing room.
2: (laughs) Yes.
1: Carmen
3: (laughs) loves the dramatic confrontation. (laughs) And I love that about him. He was clearly raised on a diet of Poirot and Marple. It's in his DNA. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's kind
1: of the genre, right? Okay, don't come at me with your facts and logic. I've never read a detective novel where they don't get their confrontation. It would be so (laughs) disappointing if they didn't.
3: Yeah, it really would
1: be. (laughs) There was a book I read recently. It was The Moonflower Murders by Anthony Horowitz, which is a sequel to The Magpie Murders, which I loved. And I won't say too much because I know these books are on your list to read, Sam.
2: I read them both. Oh, you did? Yeah, absolutely great. Yeah, absolutely loved them. Yeah, really, really good.
1: So, these are books that have books within the book. So, there's a mystery novel inside each book that relates to the real mystery. And anyway, they kind of poke fun at the genre and the readers. And the one thing they specifically talk about in the second book was this confrontation and monologue by the main character to the killer. And it was really funny how they did it. And it just made me smile because it's true of them all. It's not just a strike thing. Strikes indignation at Wardle's hesitation in getting
0: a warrant makes me so fond of him. His anger is stemming from justice not being done. And I just, I love that about him.
1: I mean, shocking, but same. I always (laughs) love when he gets really angry over injustice because it's something I can relate to. And Wardle is being really frustrating here. And I don't know, it kind of seems like he might be weighing whether or not it's worth it to endure Carver's wrath. And maybe he's just hoping that Strike is wrong,
3: you know? To be fair, it would be really annoying having Carver be your boss and be mad at you. Oh, my God.
1: Imagine being subject to that BO all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that thought. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) I never thought I'd say this, but poor
0: Wardle. (laughs) It mentions that the taxi is eating away at the advance that Bristow gave him, and I have no idea how I've never caught on until now that when Strike says that he's not going to be getting any more money from Bristow, that he's basically telling us here that Bristow is the killer. Obviously, Bristow isn't going to want to pay him anymore once he realizes he's been caught.
1: Now I'm imagining Strike sending a bill to prison just for his (laughs) own entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I would do it, and I would laugh the whole
3: time. Yeah. (laughs) Laughing on the way
1: to the mailbox. Yeah.
3: I love that. I wrote a line um, about that in a thick once, and it made me cackle then too because it's a hilarious idea. The <laughs> idea of strike billing and imprison Bristow is chef's kiss. Hilarious. Robin could write up the invoice, and they'd have mm. like a giggle about it together. <laughs> That's <laughs> a huge no, very money <laughs> need. Yeah, put I that
1: would that very much list. enjoy
3: that. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. That,
2: that would be insult to injury. You're doing twelve years, and then you get an invoice from the guy who put you there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I hope he says more than 12 years for two murders.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. hope,
4: <laughs> yeah. hope, yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's really funny. And I guess you can also argue that the way this is worded implies that today will be the end of their contract
3: because the case will be solved. But I get what you're saying, yeah. It's a shame you couldn't have spun it out to get a second installment. Just a bit. No, I mean, I know there was, like, people at risk of being murdered or oh, whatever. yeah, yeah. But... He was paying double. I wonder how much was actually left over when you consider all his expenses. Right, he did get really drunk. And London, <laughs> pub, the pints, I assume, are very expensive, or I've heard.
2: Oh, yeah. So he
3: might have yes. blown a lot of that,
1: on that <laughs> one night in the pub. I'm hoping I can get some UK feedback here because Wardle give Strike a hard time for lying to Bastigui about having photos. And this stood out to me because in the US the police are absolutely allowed to lie to a suspect. So I found it weird that Wardle was making a big deal about it, but then I did a quick Google search and it says that it's not legal in the UK which I find really interesting. And I'm wondering if anyone listening can confirm this for me. I know that strike misses some of his authority but this might be a little bit of a benefit that he didn't have before, right?
3: Yeah, I guess it would be. I didn't know that police are allowed to lie to people Oh in yeah, the state. Oh, yeah, I think I come down on the side of, no, police shouldn't be able to lie to a suspect, but that's just a, a knee-jerk reaction on my part, really.
2: I mean, I guess you can avoid answering a question if a suspect asks you something, but I guess lying could be construed as entrapment.
1: Well, it's not answering a question. It's like, they're able to say, we have this evidence against you when they really don't just like strike bullshit. The (laughs) police aren't
3: allowed to, shouldn't be allowed to do that. They are. Okay. Well, I think that that's (laughs) not right.
1: It is different than entrapment. And I think the way that strike does, it is a great example of how it's supposed to be done. I have no real moral issue with what he did, but I have to imagine it's an issue where there are wrongful convictions or depending on the vulnerability of the person being interrogated.
3: Yeah. I don't have any ethical issues with what Strike did because he's a private citizen, not an enforcer of the state. (laughs) So that's the difference for me there.
1: Yeah. I I don't know if I would have an issue with it if Strike did this and he was official, but I also can trust Strike to not be corrupt. Right. (laughs) Strike's
0: parting words to Wardle have such a mic drop moment at the end here. But if you're too much of a pussy to do anything about this, Wardle, said Strike, who could feel cold sweat on his back and a fiery pain in what remained of his right leg, and anyone who was close to Landry turns up dead, I'm going to go straight to the fucking press. I'll tell them I gave you every bit of information I had and that you had every fucking chance to bring this killer in. I'll make up my fee in selling the rights to my story and you can pass that message on to Carver for me. Now, while I'm not wild about his use of the word pussy as a pejorative, personally, I feel like calling him a coward probably could have worked too. I do think that this is kind of speaking Wordle's language. This is what he needed to hear to actually be spurred into action.
1: Yeah, it's definitely Wardle's language. And we know strike has that ability to adapt to who he's talking to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love the word, although it doesn't really bother me. I, I'm wondering if this is a bit of that perspective that Americans are more easily offended by language that I've heard about.
2: Yeah, I think in the UK we use language like that a lot more liberally. Yeah, I think more so when you're good friends with someone. Like, I wouldn't bat an eye about chucking a curse word into a conversation with my friends, and I know they wouldn't either. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural part of how we communicate with each other.
1: And you know, also strike isn't a ton of pain here, and he's also really angry. It just reminds me of that part in the Silkworm where he's so angry at Ansys that he just keeps yelling, "What a dickhead he
3: is!" <laughs> mm-hmm. True. I mean, I don't think that this is an inact accurate depiction of how a guy like strike would talk like i totally believe this interaction if it yeah. makes sense and also going yeah. back to anthesis he was being a dickhead. he was being a dickhead and the larger thing i feel like strike uses more misogynistic language in this book than he does in in later books not just this but i'm thinking specifically of the bit later in the chapter when he calls allison a poor bitch Mm -hmm. and i just find it so jarring because i feel like the strike we know in in Trouble blood wouldn't say this right so is it character growth is it joe changing her mind about the character and changing the way she writes him sometimes i wonder if she was just trying really hard to, to make it seem like this book was written by a man leaning into the persona of robert Galbraith.
2: that's really interesting
3: yeah because yeah. like well, he does it a few times in this book and it's so weird to me i wish i had something more
1: thoughtful to say because i don't think that anything else really felt that way to me but i agree The poor bitch comment stood out to me too. It did feel jarring to me as well. Yeah. And I think that everything you said could be a possibility. I just don't know what it is, but it does seem very likely to me that characters become more fully developed as you go. I remember thinking that about Columbo when I watched some of the very first episodes that his character was a lot
3: harsher than he ultimately becomes yeah so yeah i can see it i'm wondering if maybe having a woman as a partner a mm-hmm. colleague if that has somehow changed or influenced his thinking and, and the way he well, speaks somehow i, mean, I don't
1: know because there's also tracy um and i think that they true. Have a good relationship true i think it's just maybe figuring out more who he is yeah maybe but moving away from language i find it really interesting that strike threatens to go to the media because of how much he avoids them. Do any of you think that Strike would have followed through with selling his story like this if someone else had died? Because I think that he would hate it, but he would do it because he would hate the injustice more. You know, he could never pull a weight.
2: That being said, could you imagine a timeline where he did go to the press? And like what that would have meant for all the subsequent cases and and everything. At least he'd have gotten some money out of it. Like if I
3: were him at this point, I would be super tempted, even with all my Mm -hmm. principles, to sell this to the press. But I think if it was just about justice, he would hold his nose and call up the journals if it was his only option for pressuring the cops to put Bristow behind bars.
1: It also makes me wonder what Strike would do in a situation where he wasn't eventually proven right. So like, let's say that Wardle didn't follow through here and john was never caught or leonora ended up being convicted you know what would he do
3: that's such a good question i wonder if we'll ever see a case like that i know it's not likely because of how the books work yeah but if we ever got a case that somehow connected between two novels like one flowing into the other maybe the first novel could end on that kind of failure that'd be really interesting
1: (sighs) Imagine if she left us on a
3: cliffhanger like that. I that would love it.
2: Amazing. Listen,
3: yeah. I don't give a crap about plot cliffhangers. I just, no relationship cliffhangers. I can't deal that. You mean with like that. career of evil? Well, we knew he, he was her husband. So I never really felt like that was a, and I knew I that know. they were going to get divorced eventually. So it wasn't that bad. Of course, but still. That was a rough one to have three
1: years in between. Everybody yeah. knock on wood that yeah. that never <laughs> happens again. Yeah. Literally yeah. knocking
0: on wood because I can't yes. deal with
3: that kind of weight again. I <laughs> no. can't
0: strike heads back to the office worse for wear after having fallen robin not knowing that strikes missing part of his leg and has been hobbling along on an injured knee is very confused
1: i remember being really curious about why she was calling him every 10 minutes because it tells us that something happened with her too i thought maybe she just missed him and, and wanted to chat <laughs> i miss both of them right now so i get the feeling Oh yeah yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I, I could go for a chat with them yeah yeah. Also that Robin could hear his ringtone as he struggled up the stairs. And I just want to know what his ringtone is.
2: <laughs> it's got to be something like I walk the line. Or, <laughs> or these boots are made for walking or anything by the police.
3: Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Although he, he strikes me. But, um, he, but I'm <laughs> As a default tone kind of guy, you know, or at most he's a, he's a scroll through the list and pick the least annoying one kind of guy.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
3: I love that these boots are made for walking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think she paints a really clear picture here of just how much pain Strike is in by the description that he looked white and sweaty and like he might be sick. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Poor, poor guy.
0: I know the bar is literally on the floor here, but I really appreciate <laughs> that he immediately apologizes after he snapped at her when she asked if he's been drinking.
1: I felt for him after that comment because he's in so much pain and her first reaction is to think he's drunk again. <laughs> but <laughs> I could see why that would be a bit of a low blue, although it's an understandable assumption, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't help but notice that he refuses her help here. And it makes me happy to know that in the next book, he's finally allowing himself to literally lean on her.
3: Oh, I can't wait till we get oh, to that yeah. bit. I love it so much. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of male bravado going on there.
1: Yeah. Well, plus she still doesn't know about his leg, so he doesn't want to...
0: Yeah, me. that's true. Yeah. yeah. Robin has another one of those really sweet moments here when she lumps herself together with Strike, when he plumps onto and promptly breaks the couch, when she <laughs> immediately thinks, we'll need a new one, followed by... But i'm leaving
2: we, we've all been there right
3: <laughs> breaking a couch or, or wishing we could stay with strike
2: because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i mean <laughs> why not both <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: i mean talk about another low blow to sit down and break a sofa oh, i mean i know it's goodness. old but that yeah. can't feel good
3: to the ego he's yeah. not having a great day i'm cringing for him luckily it seems like he's in too much pain to register the embarrassment <laughs> Would this be as embarrassing for a guy because I feel like I, as a woman, would be like humiliated. I, don't know. I might go into witness protection. I don't think that Strike maybe would feel
1: that embarrassed, Yeah. I wonder if Joe had him break this one so she could introduce the farting sofa just because it's amusing to her. <laughs>
3: I'm uh, using to everyone. Most people, honestly, got to cringe a little bit every time that that sofa oh is mentioned. God. I'm not going to lie.
1: Even when it's just a sofa, not real. Yeah. I mean, do we need to break out the therapy edition? of the episode?
3: <laughs> I just don't like the word. Okay. It's a really horrifically uncomfortable, unattractive arrangement of letters. It's not a nice word. I might <laughs> need therapy. Yes. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever what? heard an uncomfortable arrangement of letters it is it is an uncomfortable arrangement of letters i am not comfortable with those four letters in that order raft is a great word you know it's the order that they come in
1: okay but this is actually another point where i remember my thoughts when initially reading because i was desperate for this to be resolved and for her to stay so i remember thinking like come on you two just figure this out already Something that I am still thinking five books in. I've been thinking that for how long at this point? (laughs) It's been 12 years. I did my waiting. I did my time. I did my waiting.
2: (laughs) 12 years.
1: (laughs) I really love this line after he tells her that he fell down some stairs. So it says, from the depths of his agony, he grinned at her expression, which was part horrified, part excited. This is another it's so them moment for me because he can see how excited she is, and through his pain and misery, it cheers him up a bit.
2: We all need that person who makes us smile when not a lot else will. We just needs both of them to realize that it's that for each other.
1: And from Robin's side, she's horrified that he's hurt, but thrilled that something may have happened.
3: That's so Robin. It is. We see her have guilty moments about her curiosity or her excitement for the stuff throughout the novels, don't we? The moment when the missing photos from Lula's laptop are revealed and it's there's nothing horrific in them comes to mind. She's yeah. a bit disappointed. She can't turn off that part of her, that detective part, even when she feels like she shouldn't be feeling or thinking what she is.
1: These two are so perfect for each other they
0: so are
3: they Mm. so
1: are
0: heartacre comes through with the picture of lula's brother jonah and there is no denying the relation between these two people
3: i like
1: how robin is somewhat entranced by this photo of jonah and she kind of snaps back to attention after strike asks her what's been going on i have to imagine that getting to this place where they've uncovered this huge
3: mystery and seeing the physical proof of it is a big deal for robin yeah i totally agree and add to that there's the fact that she is the one who found out about him right Mm. so it's got to be a a of personal triumph as well
2: i definitely saw this as a big puzzle piece moment as well something that's been in the background but kind of missing all the way through suddenly drops out of nowhere yeah
0: we find out that there have been a few phone calls coming into the office while Strike's been at lady bristow's so john bristow has called and tony landry has called three separate times in increasing states of agitation I love 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 this line with strike just being slightly protective and saying that Landry better not have been offensive
1: yeah he's not upset when Landry was being offensive about him but it better not have been towards Robin protective strike is in my top
3: five favorite strikes I love them Mm -hmm. what are your other favorite strikes oh we need a list okay yeah obviously BDE strike by which I mean big detective energy strike we all know that of course right uncle strike is Mm -hmm. right up there for me okay anti-porn strike my personal Mm -hmm. favorite romantic gesture strike slash apology strike because it's the same thing right yeah that's (laughs) that's my top five strikes
1: it's a good list I would add justice strike I know you would and I'm really hoping that we could add flirty strike to that at some point
3: I my ovaries will literally
0: (laughs) explode One of the reasons why Tony Landry is pissed off at Strike is because Allison has now quit her job as Tony's secretary. To which I say, good for her.
1: Yeah, I guess the power of love was finally broken.
3: Yeah, I too say, good for her. I kind of hope that this shock might cause Allison to maybe do some self-reflection. Maybe become a slightly less unpleasant person to be around. Maybe she could find some... Happiness? I hope so. It would be nice for her. I can always hope for slightly less unpleasant. That's my goal in daily life to just try (laughs) and make myself slightly less unpleasant than I usually am.
0: You go. Strike tells Robin to leave a little early for the day, but something in Strike's tone gives her pause even as he reassures her it's for Matthew's benefit and then even if he's expecting somebody to show up that he'll be okay because he was a boxer remember, he could have been a contender.
3: <laughs> he could have been yeah. a Yeah.
1: <laughs> when she offers to stick around for a bit, his response is no I want you out of here. I mean that really implies that he expects something to happen and wants her out of danger.
2: She yeah. definitely picked up it was more than just him being kind.
1: I also think that he wanted to take his leg off And he didn't want to do it in front of her
3: Oh yeah, I agree mm-hmm. he, he needed to get that off
1: And doesn't that make it even better When he admits he needs crutches in silkworm And then takes his leg off in the Land Rover In Lethal White it mm-hmm.
3: does I yeah. love being more comfortable with that aspect Of himself around her Me too I have to say
1: though It kind of annoys me When Strike uses Matthew as an excuse again When she asks who he's expecting And he says Matthew won't thank me for telling you And I was like, at the very worst, it implies that Strike believes that Matthew should have a say in what Robin knows. But since I don't think that's it, I have to assume that he's tapping into that instinct that Matthew doesn't like Robin working there and is appealing to the side of her that doesn't want to fight with Matthew. What do you guys think? It sounds
3: about right. Yeah. I feel like Strike has already picked up enough to know exactly how Matthew feels about her working with him. And so he's trying to use it as an emotional argument to get her to leave strategy because he's going for what he thinks will work. But I love that it doesn't work because it means that strike has maybe underestimated the balance of power between Matthew's influence and Robin's passion for the job
1: yeah I do really like when he tells her not to worry about him because he's boxed a little in the army and she's like yeah I I know (laughs) know, Robin and everyone in the Tottenham that night knows yeah (laughs) it feels like just it's a funny moment to break the tension
2: It's a very British thing to try and break a tense atmosphere with a very poor attempt at humor.
3: (laughs)
1: Well, I'm not even sure that Strike was trying to be funny. It's just funny that he doesn't realize that Robin is very aware that he was a boxer.
3: Joe is the one doing
1: the British thing here. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Now
0: begins the waiting game for who will show up to the office first. I find it interesting that of the three people, Bristow, Landry, and Allison, he hopes that it's Bristow who gets there first.
3: This is further proof that he loves the dramatic accusation monologue. He can't resist it. He's really hoping he gets to do his whole speech.
1: Well, I hadn't thought about this before, but it actually makes sense to me that he's hoping for Bristow because one, that means that he hasn't gone after Allison like Strike was worried about. Mm. And two, Strike has no real guarantee that Wardle's going to follow through with that warrant. So it seems like the only way of guaranteeing that Bristow is brought down is to confront him and secretly record it like he does. That way, If the police don't get the warrant, then they have this recording to listen to and it would prove that strike is right. So I think he's trying to guarantee justice, even if it means putting himself in a bit of danger. And I think that's where that hope is coming from. Yeah, Okay, that makes sense,
2: too. I remember being so tense when reading this (laughs) the very first time round. Oh, yeah. You know, i would make guesses all the way through, but knew it could be anyone that was going to walk through that door.
0: Yeah, it's really good. Strikes thought that if Landry or Allison got there, he would have to, quote unquote, think on his feet. Cracks (laughs) me up.
1: What I like most about this is that he makes himself laugh with (laughs) that joke. I like seeing little glimpses of his humor and that sometimes it's a little self-deprecating.
3: Yeah, same.
1: Here's something that I've never been able to quite work out. I can understand why he thinks Tony might show up, but why does he think that Allison
2: would? I guess- It was always an option. I thought that JK put it in there just to keep us all guessing a little bit more.
3: Yeah, I feel like she's trying to make the reader think that it could be either of those two who murdered Lula or that the two of them could be in cahoots somehow. But really, mm. once we find out the truth, why would Allison show up? She has no reason to. So I, yeah. I think this is another instance where the truth hiding from the reader isn't quite as polished as it is in later novels.
1: Do you think that Allison being sort of an accomplice by providing this alibi parallels the two killers in Lethal White with Raph mm. and Kinvara. I'm just throwing it out there to possibly suggest that pairs or accomplices could support my argument that Leda's killer had an accomplice.
3: And Allison, like Kinvara, didn't know everything about what, mm. like Kinvara yeah. didn't know Raph's whole plan. Allison didn't know what she was really providing an alibi for. And both of the why. women
1: would have been in danger, right? Yeah, because I so- think
3: Raph was planning sort of hoodwinked women Mm -hmm. keep it in mind it's going in the steel trap
1: yeah although my theory is that a man is an accomplice but we'll we'll keep it in mind we'll see what ink black
0: heart has to say Mm
4: -hmm.
0: okay so strike waits and waits for Bresto, but no one shows up yet so the chapter concludes with strike resting his eyes and waiting for his arrival do we go on to chapter two let's so in this chapter we have the final confrontation with strike and the killer Dun dun dun. dun dun dun. So the chapter opens with Bristow having just clanged his way up the metal stairs to the office, and he is absolutely furious that Strike spoke to his mother without him there.
1: I really like this opening sentence that just says footsteps on the metal stairs. It's so simple, yet it gives you that heightened sense of anticipation before you know who it is.
2: You can just picture the the scene and the sound, can't you? Massive yeah. tension.
3: Yeah. With so few words. Totally agree. And second of all, something I was wondering, you said, Ken that Bristow's furious that strike spoke to his mother. And I'm just wondering, so he claims that Yvette's been sobbing and super upset. Is this true or or is he just making up excuses to be mad at Strike for poking around? Because I feel like she wasn't that upset when Strike left, right? He didn't say anything that super upset her. So he just yeah. like a lying liar who lies?
1: I think so. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I've never actually believed him. I've always thought that he just needed to say his mother was upset to justify his anger at Strike for interviewing her. Yeah. But like you pointed out, she was fine with the questions at the time. Yeah,
2: I totally agree. I thought he was just using that as a, as a pretense to confront Strike and put him in a position where he thought he could lead that situation, that conversation. Maybe he thought that this was it.
1: I guess there's one other possibility that Strike had briefly wondered about when he interviewed her. You know, he wondered if she would pretend to be more confused than she really was to gain John's sympathy. So I guess it's possible that that happened, but I lean towards John making it up or heavily exaggerating. Yeah, me too. So if he were innocent, Bristow's anger would seem a bit disproportionate with the situation. But when he yells, do you have any idea how much damage you've done? It feels like it should be very telling to us that the damage has been done by strike uncovering the truth. Oh, good point. He's definitely
3: doing a lot of damage to John's right to not be in prison i guess yeah <laughs> his right to murder <laughs> mm, yeah there you go <laughs> taking away his civil right to murder
1: yeah his right to party <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know you've got to fight for that right i've heard
1: that
2: somewhere. there's a song in that
3: uh-huh yeah there is oh you should write it samuel make a million
2: <laughs> <laughs> how could it go
3: hmm, i
0: wonder I really love the image of the blinds falling to the windowsill with a clatter. It feels like there might be something symbolic about the light and the shade here. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah. Well, before Strike lets the blinds down, Bristow sat in the chair and the sun was in his eyes. So it puts the image in my mind of someone with a spotlight on them. And Bristow asking Strike to put the blinds down is maybe him wanting that spotlight removed. And then with the shade, it says it casts them both into a cool, faintly striped gloom. So maybe it's the truth coming through in those cracks of light, even though Bristow's trying to stamp it out. Yeah, sounds very poetic. We find out that Robin lured Bristow out of town to Rye.
0: So I love how these two work together. I'm sure Robin was thrilled to get to break out her acting skills here. 100%.
1: He does say later in the chapter that it was Robin, but here he's more cryptic with the whole like, it's almost like someone wanted you out of the way. That's mm-hmm. mm. really funny.
2: I love that. You can just yeah. hear the sarcasm behind it, can't you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's no way that Bristo didn't have a, a light bulb moment <laughs>
1: right like, there. Oh, <laughs> <It's> like, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm a little unsure of what I think here because it's after that comment that Bristo says he's terminating the contract. So I had initially assumed that he did understand that Strike was behind it. But later in the chapter, he seems so angry and shocked when Strike admits that it was Robin. So I don't know. Mm.
3: Yeah, I think he, he wanted to terminate the contract because at this point he's realizing that, oops, Strike is a way better detective than he anticipated. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah. he's nervous about all the stuff that Strike is digging up and nosing into. And he's actually starting to think like, oh, fuck, what if he figures out the truth? Let's you know dismiss the help yeah. that we were morons for hiring in the first place. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Strike asks Bristow whether he wants to know about what he found in Lady Bristow's wardrobe. And then <laughs> Bristow just begins to spontaneously combust
1: well yeah he's absolutely terrified at what strike could have found but i find it really fascinating that bristow is so scared at this point that he whispers the question of what's on the
3: will yeah good. he is specifically very afraid of losing his 10 million he's like <laughs> what was actually on the will because he doesn't know a hundred percent
1: exactly yeah right so he's like oh so we know that john knew that jonah existed but do we think that he had ever seen him before or is looking at the picture on robin's computer the first time he's ever
2: seen him I think the photograph another example of a little puzzle piece dropping in He just you know, it's from the other side of the fence this time
3: yeah I, I don't think he'd ever seen him before but I bet he sees that picture and he's like oh shit because it's really obvious that that is her actual half-brother since they look so much alike and it's yeah like, no one's going to be able to deny that she had this half-brother and left the money to him right
1: yeah it must be really weird for Bristow to see someone who looks so much like Lula on the screen It's almost like part of her is still living on and coming back to haunt him. Ooh,
3: that's spooky. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: do really like this fake out that Strike does here where for a moment he allows Brista to think that he believes Jonah is the killer. It's just so satisfying to see him think he's one when he says, they all said I was deluded. He almost shouted, but I wasn't bloody deluded at
3: all.
2: Exactly what a non-diluted person would say. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> when I get to this bit, I physically cannot stop myself from like wiggling in my chair that I'm, I'm just so excited. Like, you idiot. Just you wait. <laughs> oh my goodness.
0: We finally arrive at the telling moment when Strike says, No, John, you weren't deluded, Not deluded, More like batshit insane. I love that bit. And then, just in case the implications weren't obvious... It's followed up with, I said, you're batshit insane. You killed your sister, got away with it, and then asked me to reinvestigate her death. Now, I very vividly remember how shocked I was when I read this for the first time. (laughs) You
1: guys remember how you felt when the killer was revealed? I mean, I could only assume that I gasped. Yeah, I'm 100% sure
2: I gasped. Yeah. yeah.
3: I love this line. You're batshit insane so much. Just something about it is perfect to me. And I really like this line
1: in between the two quotes that you just read, Ken's, where it says, through the shaded window came the sounds of London, alive at all hours, rumbling and growling, part man, part machine. There was no noise inside the room, but Bristow's ragged breathing. I guess I just read this as life continuing while we're watching Bristow start to realize that his life as he knows it is over. I like
2: that. Yeah. It's almost like they're frozen in their own little bubble while life outside is kind of all carrying on like they're locked into that moment.
3: Yeah. yeah. It really creates an atmosphere like Yeah yeah. Pressure cooker. Yeah. And can we talk about
1: this really quickly though? Because I know this is something that many readers find confusing. I've seen this question posted a lot online. So why would Bristow hire Strike to reinvestigate this when he's already gotten away with it? Anyone want to take a crack at it?
2: The main driving force for him was the money. Mm-hmm. Which would have gone to him eventually if, you know, when Lady B died. Maybe he was worried that Other people were beginning to form their own suspicions of what might have happened. So he hired Strike in the hope of like muddying the water there.
3: I think that Strike's explanation as to why John did it makes sense and is probably accurate. So, I mean, he was worried that the will, which he now knew about, would surface and that Jonah would inherit the estate. So since he couldn't find the will to destroy it... He decided the best idea was to frame Jonah and get him imprisoned so that he couldn't inherit the money, even if the wool was found. And he's mm-hmm. got a bit of a twisted mind here, so to him, that made sense as something to do. Yeah,
1: it's too bad for him that he didn't hire Mitch Patterson instead.
3: <laughs> yeah. No Is Mitch Patterson even good <laughs> enough to have found Jonah? Mm. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Strike tells Bristow that it's been obvious from the beginning that he had the most to gain from Lula's death and that, quote, Albris shares are hardly worth the paper they're written on these days. Now, as a reminder, Albris is the electronics company that Sir Alec Bristow created, and Strike was just looking into the share prices in Chapter 3 of Part 4. Was this the point at which he could 100% determine that the strongest motive
1: was money? I mean, I think it would be an oversight to not suspect money was the strongest motive, but this is Mr. Means Over Motive we're talking about here.
2: (laughs) What are the top three motives for murder? Love, sex, and money. Has anyone else heard that? Or is that just me?
3: I've totally heard that. And yeah, ultimately, don't most murders boil down to that? I guess Mm -hmm. you could add like revenge or honor to that list.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Or just crazy pants.
2: Yeah, true. That too.
3: Love, sex, money, That's
1: crazy pants, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there are a few lines here that I really want to jump all over in regards to our Gillespie theory. And I've already pointed these out in our new blog post on our site. but there's no way that we can skip over them now. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these few lines really caught my eye after our discussion of Gillespie as a potential suspect and that his motive for Leda's murder would be that child support money more specifically that he was embezzling the money and was somehow caught. And of course, this is all based on the ring structure theory where we would expect to see echoes of book one in seven. So the first line is, it's been obvious to me from the start that the person who benefits most from Lula's death is you, John, 10 million quid once your mother gives up the ghost. So the implication here is that the motive has been obvious from the start and if we apply that to later, the child support money has been introduced to us from the start, just not
3: fully explained. Totally agreed. That money is a big plot point that's been sort of hinted at and danced around, but I definitely think it'll be coming back into focus when the later murder plot takes center stage. Imagine if it really is something like $10 that Strike ends up getting. Oh my god, can you imagine how angry and envious Matthew would be if Strike (laughs) and Robin had that kind of money and they just bought themselves like a cute house? I already
1: want it because I want them to never have to worry about money again. Yeah but that makes me want it more you know robin oh. shows up to christmas and driving around matthew's dream car <laughs> i feel like strike's not the kind of guy who would buy an audi
3: but he would buy an audi to spite matthew 100 yeah. yeah. or they would just rent one to go to christmas <laughs> yeah. right
1: just for fun oh man the next bit is just a few paragraphs down where strike also accuses bristow of embezzling from the conway oats account so it says Oh, I'm an embezzler too, am I, said Bristow with an artificial laugh. Yeah, I think so, said Strike. Not that it matters to me. I don't care whether you killed Lula because you needed to replace the money you'd nicked or because you wanted her millions or because you hated her guts. The jury will want to know though, they're always suckers for motive. So for Strike to imply that the motive was to cover up an embezzlement, I think is huge because I think it supports the idea of Leda's killer also having this motive. Yeah. And then the last line comes a little later and this one isn't in the blog post, although maybe it should be, I don't know. Strike says, had Tony noticed the lack of funds in the Conway Oates account? Did you need to replace it urgently? Mm. If our theory is right, I don't think Gillespie was trying to replace money if Leda found out or when she found out. I think he just silenced her, but I would argue that he's trying to replace it in this book by hounding strike for repayment so I don't know if this fully
3: fits but no I totally agree that Gillespie might be trying to replace the money that he embezzled in this book I also kind of think he could have killed later to silence her if she'd discovered there's less money in the account than there should have been which I'm now realizing is literally exactly what you just said yeah exactly ignore that yeah
0: (laughs) I have so So much love for how cool and level headed strike is during this entire exchange as Bristow (laughs) is getting more and more nervous. And yes, I will be taking this opportunity to say that it's also really sexy.
1: I mean, it wouldn't be an episode of the Strike Melcott Files if Ken's didn't point out something she finds sexy about Strike.
0: <laughs> it's just a friendly reminder.
2: <laughs> Maybe you three should have a special, another special episode dedicated to swooning over Strike, the sexy moment <laughs> highlights, something Top like 10 that. Sexy
1: Strike moments. Yes. <laughs> I think that might be most of the outtakes, honestly. <laughs> but
3: I just blame pools for having wine okay <laughs> you know. all right first of all swooning over strike is basically every episode of the show second of all you talk as if i'm the instigator of the sexy strike talk no you are both guilty <laughs> and i i am innocent
1: in this you are innocent i feel like uh-huh. i need lori yes. to show up to say the lie detector determined that that was a lie <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, because not only is this kind of a crisis moment that we know he does well in, but he's trained for this. I mean, he's very calm and
3: collected. He's in complete charge here up until the knife comes out, really. (laughs) Yeah, he's in complete control. I feel like he's definitely goading John. He's trying to push him enough to confess or I assume, or to come at him with a knife. Yeah, I I think it's what he wants
1: if he wants to take all this to the police Mm -hmm. and shove it in Carver's gross face. So Mm -hmm. yeah.
3: Clearly a prime
1: motivator.
0: The relationship between Rochelle and Bristow is finally explained. After Rochelle witnessed the will, she alerted Bristow and began to blackmail him for money for somewhere to live and some nice clothes in exchange for keeping her mouth shut that Bristow wasn't the beneficiary of the will.
1: Yeah, it's also how Bristow knew that the other runner was Jonah, which I suppose allowed him to come up with his whole plan of trying to frame him in the first place. And this really puts
0: into perspective just how hurt Rochelle was that she wasn't included in the will and that she was dumped at Vashti that she didn't care at all that Lula's killer got off scot-free
1: I mean I'm once again struggling here because I find this so strange I don't know how long Lula and Rochelle were friends but I've had 20 plus year friendships that I would never assume I'd be in their wills even if they were multimillionaires. am I am I not in your will hate to break it to you
3: wow okay see if I you know catch your killer it's
1: it's so weird, right? I mean, it just reminds me of what you mentioned Pool's last time about the comparison between Lady Brissot and Rochelle both feeling so entitled to Lula and her time and money. Yeah, exactly.
3: A reasonable person wouldn't be hurt by not featuring in a friend's will like this, but Rochelle isn't yeah. coming from a reasonable place emotionally or mentally she's, she's It's irrational. But yeah, I feel like it makes sense for who her character is. Sure. I guess that she feel this way. I mean, yeah. She, she doesn't share your drive for justice. I mean, we've had this discussion before, but it's yeah. just really a struggle for me
1: because I find what she did to be really awful. Like even yeah. though she's had a hard life and I don't know, I think part of it might, have to do with that reoccurring theme of bad childhoods being used as an excuse kind of like what izzy does for raf Hmm. when we're not even fully aware yet of just how bad strike's childhood was or Hmm. lucy's so
2: this was always going to be a moment that could have ruined john's plans he got away with lula's murder but there was no guarantee that he was gonna get away with this one
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it was looking good for him though because he picked a victim who was easily ignored Right.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very,
1: very risky. And he got lucky with Carver being in charge. Again. Yeah. massively. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> he couldn't have picked a better detective to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. I like when Strike says it's funny that the will was hiding in his mother's wardrobe the whole time, because it makes me think of that phrase about skeletons hiding in your closet. And John literally has all his skeletons or evidence of his murders in that closet. So there's Lula's will, there's Rochelle's phone, and the date of Charlie's murder as the code to the safe. Like, it's all right there.
2: Yeah, love that.
1: No wonder he's mad about Strike going through his murder closet. <laughs> I feel like Raff is the only one of the killers that didn't keep things. Mm. Okay, so Bristow has his murder closet. Yeah, Tassel has her murder freezer with body parts in the manuscript. Mm -hmm. Lang we know he has this whole murder apartment whole apartment and then Janice with her murder fireplace and
3: drawer with pictures and obituaries I'm now wondering for the first time whether Tassel emptied out her freezer before she put the intestines in there Because, like, were they sitting right next to her frozen peas? Shouldn't she be worried about cross-contamination? It doesn't seem seem sanitary. That is very disturbing. It's very
1: gross. I would think she cleaned it out. I would hope. Well, then where did she put her frozen peas? Does she have a second Uh, freezer? Maybe she just had a lot of takeout. Although it would go with your cannibal
3: parallel theory still helping we get fingers crossed fingers crossed really for cannibal yeah <laughs> half eaten corpse discovered on the empty chair grave okay <laughs> it's a very specific prediction if it comes true it'll be amazing exactly this is yeah. why i get real specific just in <laughs> case just in the million to one chance that i knock it out of the park
1: Yeah. Strike also explains how Bryony, the makeup artist, plays into this, that she did see the will, but because of her dyslexia, thought it said John. I mean, it's not exactly a smoking gun on its own, but she's going to be another witness on the stand. And it's another piece of the puzzle that's put into place for us.
3: Yeah, that's true. And she will be useful on the stand, actually, because she'll be able to confirm if that will is, in fact, the piece of paper she saw that date mm-hmm. so that they know who actually wrote it because Rochelle would have been able to but she's dead now so there's someone out there who can attest to the will's authenticity because she's yeah. a snoop so I guess snooping pays off is what you're saying always isn't that the point of these whole novels literally making their career out of snooping. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I guess so you're right <laughs> literally the motto <laughs> of the novels I assume put it in Latin yeah. it'll sound better <laughs> All right. I love this little fourth
0: wall break when Brista says that Strike should give up detective work and take up fantasy writing instead. Joe had to yeah. have been laughing to herself just a little bit while she was writing that, right?
1: Oh yeah. I, I like this too, especially because this book was released before she was outed. So it's extra funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: That's such a good little Easter egg.
1: And I really like how Strike pokes at him by wondering what kind of tactic the defense will take. So he says, mm-hmm. I wonder what defending counsel will say is wrong with you, John, as Strike softly narcissism, some kind of God complex. You think you're completely untouchable, don't you? A genius who makes the rest of us look like chimps.
3: When the real genius who makes the rest of us look like chimps is... Story right you know there. Who. I
1: do know who yeah. <laughs> not Voldemort.
3: No, not Voldemort.
1: I really like the next few paragraphs where strike is basically explaining what happened that day. And during this explanation, I noticed something that I got wrong a few episodes back. So I had said that Lexinka mentioned that flat two is mostly clean and that that meant that she was already out by the time that Bristow hit in there, but that's not right. Strike actually suggests that she was vacuuming and That's when he snuck in behind Wilson and the alarm guy and hid in the closet or somewhere. I mean, that's very bold or very desperate. Very much so. Strike says that
3: he could have explained away walking behind Wilson and saying, oh, I was just coming to say thanks. But how did you explain away why you're hiding under the bed or in a closet? (laughs) It's a bit
1: sus, you know? (laughs) I'm just imagining how he would have tried to get away with that if Lexica had (laughs) opened the closet. (laughs) And he's just standing there.
2: This isn't the bathroom.
1: I thought this was the lobby. Where am I? (laughs) You found me, your turn to hide in the (laughs) That was a big risk. There's a
0: moment here where Strike is talking about Allison and he says, but lately I've been getting worried that she might outlive her usefulness to you and fall off something high. And Mm -hmm. that gave me shivers.
1: Yeah, I think Allison was in real danger, but we know there was another person, right? So who was the other person that Strike thought was in danger? Could he have thought that Bristow might try to kill Tony? Tony makes sense. (laughs) Maybe himself. Strike was also in danger. He literally was. So he he
3: literally is about to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. I don't know. I really like this part where Strike says that he doesn't believe Bristow initially planned to kill her when he went into DB's flat. But sitting there in all that luxury got him thinking of how nice it would be to inherit Lula's money and to finally be the only child and get all that love he wasn't given. And I got to say, you know, he calls Robin the psychologist,
3: but this is a pretty (laughs) good read on Bristow yeah it is he always says he doesn't care about motive but he always does Mm -hmm. figure out why the murderer did it doesn't he or at least he makes really good guesses he's good at reading people and understanding them yeah
1: although joe does need to give us a motive right true of course it's in there because
3: (laughs) we like the jury Careable yes, they're suckers for motive. We yeah. are suckers, yeah. but I I do understand
1: what Strike is saying there because if you only focus on motive, then mm-hmm. your mind is kind of closed to just that, and you're not looking at who could have done it, right? Yeah. He also really hammers at home in the end when he says, "Your mother hasn't even got a picture of you by her deathbed; just Charlie and Lula, just the two she loved." Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Call the burn unit. Yeah.
3: He is,
1: He's really yeah. trying to get
3: Bristow to snap here. Like he's, he's going hard.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's not, not true.
3: It's not, not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You know that Bristow's well and truly lost when the only response he come up with is calling Strike's mother a whore and insinuating she died yeah. of a venereal disease.
1: I mean, Lang does the same thing, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. It feels like Strike could have used the exact same line here that he did on Lang when he said at least. <laughs> she loved me oh my
0: <laughs> god
3: you're twisting the knife man salt in the wound yeah. yeah i do love his response here though where he says nice said strike appreciatively mm-hmm. I, he's just so <laughs> in control that bristow can't even reach his buttons to touch
1: yeah. them i don't think we ever see a killer get under his skin with personal taunts nah this nah. is too yeah. good
3: we see oakden that fucker mm. getting under his yeah. skin. Yeah, that's true. But never the actual murderers.
2: Yeah. The correlation is is always great him getting the last word in both those confrontations. Mm. Like that makes me wonder if Robin will ever have one of those moments in the same way
3: i so want robin to get her own poirot monologue like she's earned it or at least let her be present in contributing when strikes doing his shit or also not having a gun held to her head too because she She definitely did did have her own
1: moment but she was also being held at one point i totally forgot Oh, my God, (laughs) Tens. I would love for them to do that together. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that would be great.
1: I would kind of love to see this happen with Leda's killer because Strike might actually need her then just emotionally.
3: Oh, my God. Now you're pressing my buttons. (laughs) (laughs) I want that. I want that Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: me too. (laughs) This is another line that gave me shivers. Was it easier the second time? The detective asked quietly. Was it easier killing Lula than killing Charlie? I swear to God, I was holding (laughs) my breath at this part. Yeah.
1: Especially because he says it so quietly, it's more powerful. Mm -hmm. But also it's so good because we haven't even been given time to fully come down from this big reveal about (laughs) Lula's killer. And now we're being given another one.
2: It's really good. I definitely didn't see that coming. I had to think really hard about who charlie actually was because you know there's only been what he forgot like yeah. one or two references or something i was like who? who i was like oh yeah right oh
3: i remember that this reveal in particular absolutely blew my mind i could not believe it but it it makes so much sense honestly i just i really love that strike's able to get justice for his childhood friend so unexpectedly mm-hmm. and so many years later and i know i've said that before Yeah, I want to say that again. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah,
1: Does this reveal about Tony Landry witnessing John cycling away from the scene of Charlie's death and the explanation of some of his behavior change anyone's opinion on him? I mean, I know he's awful in other ways, but I just feel like I have more complicated feelings about him after this because... I can't imagine being in that situation. You know, what do you do when you believe something but you have no proof and now you have to worry about another child?
2: I think he always knew deep down what really happened, but not being able to prove it or do anything about it or bring him to task at all must have been really hard to deal with. I
3: don't know. it, It didn't really change my opinion of him. I mean, I guess learning that he knew that John was a killer maybe a killer and that his alibi was super sus but that tony was too busy covering his own ass to say anything about that makes me think a bit less of him
1: yeah well i'm thinking more about charlie and mm-hmm. that time before and what a difficult position that must have been and it makes me understand his bad behavior towards john at least
3: oh that's never being like oh how dare he be so mean to john <laughs> yeah, no, I it was the first time through but i've forgotten that now i'm like yeah tony you spy on john you you (laughs) mean to him you bully him he deserves it
0: yeah speaking of tony this whole situation with bristow and landry having to be each other's
1: alibis was so interesting to read
2: it's such a good twist each of them being reliant on each other in that way
1: yeah especially because they're two characters who you don't expect to be in cahoots if you will because we know they hate each other again it's kind of like raf and kinvara hmm interesting Now, some of this may be Joe, but Strike's storytelling
0: ability as he's kind of walking Bristow through he and Lula's final moments together is seriously top notch.
1: Some of it might be Joe. I think all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, almost like it was written by a really good storyteller. (laughs) I mean, he's a poetic guy. We've been over this. So then Strike finally gets to the moment when Bristow had used the flowers to get inside And he says that the balcony doors were open because Lula was out there looking for Jonah. And I know this is a small detail and not totally important, but it paints a different picture than the one we've been given of someone who opened the windows for an
3: escape rather than someone looking forward to a new beginning. i got to be honest, this little detail breaks my heart a bit, just knowing how excited Lula was to meet jonah so excited that she was standing out in the cold in the middle of the night in the middle of the winter looking for him to come down the street yeah. just it really gets me
1: and i don't know why i've never fully understood this and maybe it's because i always read this chapter so quickly because it's so exciting But I had always kind of imagined them having an argument near the balcony, Mm -hmm. but that's not what Stripe describes at all. He says that he thinks Bristow grabbed her as soon as he entered and that she's screaming at him as he carries or pulls her over to the balcony. And that's just horrifying that she was more aware of what was happening than I had realized or hoped, you know, it's just awful.
2: Kind of sets the tone for all the other books in terms of the nature of the murders being a bit yeah. grislier and a bit darker.
1: Yeah, she jumped right in with Silkworm and Darkness in a she? Yeah,
2: yeah, big time.
3: She can get darker. I'm really excited to see it.
1: And then Bristow again says that Strike has no proof and this is when he drops the bomb that the police should have a warrant by now to get into the safe
0: so the moment comes when strike says the combination of lady bristow's safe and bristow lunges and now Mm -hmm. we finally get to see the madness within as i said in the third (laughs) harry potter movie
1: oh okay don't remind me how much i love that scene but yes the madness within comes out i guess the fact that strike guesses that code bristow knows he's been outsmarted and that's what does it
2: mostly to do with the fact he's been found out but maybe in part the fact that Strike's smarter than him, and that's what makes him snap.
1: Yeah, I like that. It must be unfathomable for a narcissist like John Bristow like that had to
3: infuriate him. I figured that and the knowledge that the police have now got the actual physical proof rather than just this compelling narrative that Strike's put forth also maybe contributed to it a bit.
1: I remember it scared me reading this for the first time that Bristow had a knife. And the knife point grazes Strike's chest. And then, of course, we know that his arm is injured. What do you guys think about that Strike and Robin both have these arm scars? And I guess, I mean, Harry has one, too. I feel like it
3: means means something. I don't know what it means, Mm. but it feels significant that these arm scars are a thing, right? And Lula has one in this novel, too. I remember reading
1: something about this on an old Hogwarts professor post, but I wasn't able to find it again when I looked for it. At the very least, she's pairing them together, right? But it does feel like there's something more since all of her heroes have them.
2: Pretty dark, you know, wedding bands for them both to have, isn't it? (laughs) Matching arm scars.
1: (laughs) I know that Bristow was intending on framing the death threat guy, but this feels like such a stupid move another stupid (laughs) move because let's say that he had killed strike and now he's the only client of a murder victim who's (laughs) covered in bruises (laughs) what was he thinking (laughs) Uh,
2: how would you even how would you even begin to cover that one up (laughs) it would be a massive lie
1: i think that that narcissistic assumption that you're smarter than everyone really does make you stupid
3: yeah Yeah, it really does it's in a very popular street someone saw this this (laughs) white guy in a suit going into strike's office there's cctv yeah like what is he thinking
1: yes it was very stupid move on Bristow's part strike
0: and Bristow are fighting and robin arrives just in time to see strike beating the hell out of Bristow with his own prosthetic (laughs) leg which i have to say is done really spectacularly in the tv adaptation
1: I love that Strikes Leg saves the day. It's great.
0: (laughs) Yes. So he says, as Robin arrives, I thought he panted, unable to see Robin. I told you to go home. Never. Robin is your ride or die, my
1: friend. I think that maybe she did go home. She just came back. But actually, I have a question about this that was sent to us from Kurt, who you might remember us mentioning before. He's written a couple things over at Hogwarts Professor, including the one he co-wrote with Beatrice Groves about the possibility of Shakespeare's sonnets as epigraphs for Ink Blackheart. So his question is, why does Robin return to the office in time to intervene between Strike and Bristow, which to be honest, probably saves Bristow's life and not Strike's? Here's the thought strike had told her to tell Bristow about the Nutter Brian Mathers. And even though at that point, she didn't know who the killer was. Is it possible that she intuited it and realized perhaps subconsciously that strike was in danger from Bristow and instinctively went back to help him part of the problem here. And it may simply be an oversight by JK Rowling is how long after Robin left, did the fight take place? It seems very unlikely that she would return after a long time, but there it is. So I think that Robin was gone for a long time because she left before five and it says that it was half past six when strike made his way into the inner office. Then he falls asleep plus their whole confrontation. So I think we're looking at at least two hours. So it seems like maybe Robin was home and then probably just kept feeling like something was off.
3: So yeah, her intuition led her back. I'm glad that you laid out that timeline. Cause i always just thought that she'd gone to sit in a restaurant or a pub nearby because she could feel that something was going to happen and she just couldn't make herself go home yet and wanted to keep an eye on the office. But you know what? It makes a lot more sense that she'd gone home and then come back. I yeah. bet Matthew was thrilled with <laughs> that.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah, that's fun to think about. I like. Yeah, that. he's like, yes. "What do you mean you're going back to work? Because you have a feeling about your boss." <laughs> yeah, she does. Yeah, I bet
1: she's got all kinds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if she put it together about the death threat guy in Bristow or. If she just knew from strike, basically saying he wanted her out of there, that something was going to happen, but I love that this proves to strike to us to Robin herself, that not only is she good at this job, but she's willing to do all the dangerous and unglamorous parts of it too. So she's completely worthy of being partners with this man who also does all of those things.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. to all of that. Yeah. I'm really glad that she stopped Strike from killing Bristow because I feel like (laughs) clubbing a man to death in your office might not be great for business. Probably not. The chapter
0: ends with Strike revealing to us that he had been recording the conversation with Bristow the entire time.
1: I mean, again, I'm wondering if this is legal or admissible in court, although again, I guess it proves to the people who are going to be in charge, like the detectives and the prosecutors, that Strike is right. So given his position, that might be the most important part
3: and why Strike does it. From what I've read, covert recordings can be used as evidence in court in the UK, but the judge also has the power to say that they're not admissible. Um, My question is, are they going to play this entire tape in court to the jury? Because that's a long-ass recording i mean i would listen to it i would listen to it too but <laughs> is that
1: whole thing gonna be
2: you guess so but as a, a larger question do you think he trusts the detectives more than the police itself like trusting the people more than more than the process in terms of like recording it and stuff Ooh. just in case
3: That's an interesting question. I actually thought it was the other way around. He trusts the justice system and the process, but he doesn't trust the individual idiots within the system. Like Carver, I'm looking at you.
1: I don't really know what I think because, I mean, I think this is a man who will have seen the system fail probably numerous times. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can only see it how I see it, that there are times where either or both those things are true. And it probably makes him that much more determined to be you know the champion of true justice as we've heard somewhere before
3: yeah have we i don't think you've ever mentioned that never
1: but before we go to the epilogue there are a few things in this chapter that feel kind of like a full circle moment with the beginning of the book obviously returning to the office is this the first time that he comes back to the office since the beginning I think it is, but also just his demeanor is similar in both chapters with the shaking knees and wringing his hands. And strike Mm -hmm. says that Bristow was as full of rage as he had been the day that strike had refused to take the case. So lots of circle moments. And then also Robin, because in that early chapter, she saved the day and took him by surprise with coffee and biscuits. And now she's doing it again, but for real saving the day. So Mm -hmm. I love all those things. Do any of you see any other rings here?
3: There is the fact that Strike is injured in the beginning of the novel in the office by Charlotte. Because she scratches at his face, right? Draws blood. The first Mm -hmm. blood. And now he's bleeding because of Bristow, who is knifing Mm -hmm. him, which is significantly more serious. But still, he's bleeding in the office because he's been attacked. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Should we go to the epilogue? Yes, let's. So the epilogue is when Strike meets up with Lula's biological brother, Jonah. And there's some good robin stuff in here too and i'm also so excited that we get two epigraphs in this episode because there's another oh, one yay so the epigraph for the epilogue
0: is nothing is an unmixed blessing and that's from book two of odes by horace so i'm gonna make an educated guess and say that this is related to both jonah who's now 10 million pounds richer and Strike, whose fame on his merit is skyrocketing in the aftermath of catching Lula's killer. What do you guys think?
1: And it also makes me think of the fly in the ointment line towards the end, because Robin staying is a huge blessing to both of them. But we all know that it's going to cause some heartache along the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Worth it, but still. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that this can be applied in many ways, which always makes the epigraphs my favorite when you can do that. I totally agree with all you said. You guys nailed it. We start out this chapter by learning that Jonah Aguman was summoned back to Britain
0: from his tour of duty in Afghanistan by the Met.
1: I just remember being really excited to hear from Jonah in this chapter, finally. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So the plot hole that we had mentioned with Mia Thompson is addressed here and it says Mia Thompson had already been tracked by the press to her parents house in Adelaide where she had confirmed in a blaze of publicity that she had had no idea what she was signing that day in the changing room. The will in consequence was invalid. Nevertheless, it seemed certain that Lula's last wishes would be honored by her family. The dying Yvette Bristow was of the same opinion of the newsreading public. If anyone was to inherit a fortune, it ought to be the young soldier, not the uncle who is now known to have concealed crucial evidence in his niece's murder and to be a philanderer to boot. Jonah, in short, would shortly be in possession of the 10 million pounds for which his sister had been murdered.
3: So is anyone else a little surprised that Yvette is actually going to honor Lula's last wishes and let her money pass out of the family? Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. sure, all this about Tony being awful makes sense, but... I don't know. I could see Yvette leaving all the money to some charity to spite him, but leaving it to Lula's birth family, her her half-brother, just seems so at odds with Yvette's earlier possessiveness of Lula and the way she hated the thought of Lula looking for that family. It just seems so out of character to me that Yvette would be this nice. (laughs) Maybe the
1: shock of what had happened, combined Mm. with how close she is to death, made her actually do the right thing. Mm. Or... There's also public opinion. So I bet
3: she enjoyed feeling admired for that decision. Uh, Yeah, both of those make sense especially the one about (laughs) wanting to be admired by the public as a saint that checks out
0: and we also get a little bit more background on lula and jonah's father that he had never told jonah's mother about his affair with marlene and had never known if marlene was telling the truth when she said that she was pregnant
1: this is interesting to me because it's implied that he did go back but marlene had moved because he told jonah that she had disappeared and i went back and looked at what marlene said in her interview and she never says anything about it but it's not that out there for me to believe that.
3: How different would Lula's life have been if her birth father had found her? And yeah. brought, I mean, I guess his wife wouldn't be a fan of it.
1: I didn't get the impression that he was married then because wasn't he living in that building too? Oh, yeah. I, I just took a fair like they had a fling. Yeah. Probably wasn't married then. I so. didn't, yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah. It's just interesting that they both... Marlene and Joseph Agumon both say that the other had disappeared. Marlene says that he disappeared back to Africa, but we know that's not true. So I don't know. It just makes sense to me that maybe Marlene had moved. He could have tried harder, but there it is.
0: Jonah's description of finally getting to talk to Lula only to then watch her fall to her death. God, I can't imagine how awful that must've been for him to witness.
1: Yeah, I always like the line where Jonah talks about Lula calling for the first time, and he says that she had sounded all right, and Strike says, I think she was. It just feels like the first genuine opinion that Lula was doing well, and something about it coming from these two men makes it feel more meaningful.
2: Yeah, it's good to hear from someone who liked her for who she was, and didn't want anything from her. Everyone else always seemed to have, well, not like an ulterior motive, but something in the background that made them need her around like does that make sense
3: that makes perfect sense and it's it's why i love this scene so much because i i want that for Lula. i wanted that for her there's also this funny line where jonah
1: asks strike if he'd believe it if some supermodel had called him up and said she was his sister and strike is like Probably. <laughs> it just makes me more curious about meeting some of his other siblings, you know.
2: I really like what we've seen of them so far, like in, in Trouble Blood, but I agree there's definitely a lot of potential there, like more to be had from them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I remember us talking about whether or not Lula would have finally found what she was looking for in Jonah, you know, someone who cared for her and not her money. And I feel like we were right when we thought that she would have the fact that he was happy that Lula was doing what she could to keep him out of the press, that he doesn't want to hurt his mother, that he's not just happy about getting all this money. It tells me that he's a good guy who cares about the people in his life. Yeah, I totally
3: agree. He seems like a decent, caring person to me. Yeah, he does.
1: Oh man,
0: there is this part that just, God, it makes my heart ache for Lula. And it says- And I think she was desperate to see you because she wanted someone, anyone she could love and trust. Her mother was difficult and dying. She hated her uncle and she'd just been told her adoptive brother was a killer. She must've been desperate. And I think she was scared. The day before she died, Risto had tried to force her to give him money. She must've been wondering what he'd do next.
1: Yeah. You know, I know we all like Wilson, but I really hope he takes it more seriously in the future when someone says not to let someone up.
3: You know, well, that, that is a good point. I wonder if if his job as a security guard is going to be in jeopardy once all this comes out, because he uh, did do a real good job of security guarding here, did he? I
1: know, especially when it comes yeah. to a young woman living alone. Yeah. Listen to what they say.
3: Yeah, really.
1: Speaking of Briscoe, I like when Jonah says he's glad that Strike broke his jaw, and Strike <laughs> says, "And his nose," cheerfully. <laughs>
2: I think we're all pleased about that bit
1: oh yeah, yeah definitely I'm, I'm fine with that yeah
2: <laughs> he came out
1: with more injuries than expected yes <laughs> so his meeting with jonah ends with jonah asking for some reassurance that bristow won't get away with it and that's when strike explains that he still had rochelle's phone in his safe and that the code was the day he had killed charlie And that code is just really creepy to me. I mean, it tells us that the day he first killed was a good day for John Bristow. So creepy.
2: So dark, isn't it?
1: Yeah. That's some psychopath shit right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy to not see Bristow as as dark as some of the other killers we've seen. But this feels like one of those horrible documentaries that you see about evil
3: children, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Just really creepy. He's a super creepy guy. He's a super creep. Yeah. Yeah. Super creepy. Super creepy. Super creepy. Super creepy. Super creepy. (laughs) Okay.
1: Let's go on to happier things. Yes, please.
0: Let's. So we learn that it's Robin's final day and that she had declined Strike's offer to meet with Jonah.
1: I've always found it a little sad that she didn't want to go with him, but I think Strike is right when it says Strike had the feeling that she was deliberately withdrawing from the case from the work from him these two
3: from him come on from the important
0: part (laughs) I know
3: I don't even have anything to add I can only repeat on loop from him and like from a grammar perspective the final part of the sentence that's a that's an emphasis point right Right. the last Mm -hmm.
0: that so mm. oh this is really sweet Not so very long ago, the impermanence of their arrangement had been the only thing that had reconciled him to her presence. And now he knew that he would miss her.
1: I'm finding this chapter to be similar to chapter one, where it's so full of foreshadowing. So Robin thinking in chapter one, that she'd remember this day for the rest of her life. And now strike wondering if he'd ever see her again and that he'd miss her. And then there's one more sentence at the end of the quote you just read, Ken's, where it says, she had come with him in the taxi to the hospital and wrapped her trench coat around his bleeding arm. And it just feels like that meant so much to him you know. Mm-hmm. And this might be a silly parallel, but it just hit me that she takes her coat off in those early chapters when he realizes how attractive she is. And now we read that she took it off again to help him. I don't know
3: oh. I don't know. It's not fully thought through. No, that's perfect. Because the first time she takes her coat off in his office, it reveals how incredibly physically attractive she is to him, right? And we know that Mm -hmm. from what he says in Troubled Blood. But the second time at the end of the novel, she's taking her coat off to do something that's revealing a lot more about her than just her, you know, how sexy she is. It's revealing Mm -hmm. how good she is in emergencies, how kind she is, how much she cares about helping strike how willing she is Aww. to dive into the job. Like she's taking off her coat to do something that reveals her inner character. That is I love so that. good. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Mm. Aww.
1: I also really enjoy reading everything about the media coverage. I'm sure that Strike doesn't love how Rokeby and Leda are tied in, but I remember feeling so happy that he had all this potential business coming in. Mm-hmm. And I also love the bit about the police incompetence, right? <laughs> it feels like even more justice.
3: I love thinking about Carver fuming with rage every time he hears Strike's name in the press. That's Justice, (laughs) baby,
1: right there. This feels like a theme for you because you like this in Trouble Blood with Matthew too. I
3: do. I guess I have a thing for it. Yeah, you do.
2: Just because I'm listening to it at the minute, I like how it sets the tone for a, a lot of the silkworm. There's a lot of mention to how a lot of the police are still sore about Having the rug swept from underneath them because of the Lula Landry case. Yeah. A victim of of his own success.
1: Yeah. So
0: here we are. We're coming to a pivotal moment when Strike gives Robin that gorgeous and expensive green dress that she modeled for him at the boutique.
1: The way he sets this up, that he wants to say a proper thank you, is very sweet. I always go back to your theory on love languages, pools that this was Strike wanting to express so much including things that he couldn't say out loud so he does it this way and i know it sort of goes without saying i just think you're so right about the love languages thing
3: i love it thank you i love it when people tell me i'm right about things so <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot that's literally my love language Okay. <laughs> so.
2: actions speak louder than words but mm-hmm. i love that this is all backed up by a physical gift as well
1: and I also like knowing that he had thanked her in the cab, a thank you that she
3: had considered a proper thank you. I just—I wonder what he said. Listen, it's things like this that make me wish we could get 2,000 plus page books. Because, okay, so I know intellectually that we can't right. have every single interaction between the two of them shown to us in perfect detail, right? Mm-hmm. But my heart says, why can't we? Yeah. Who cares about pacing or <laughs> books that you can lift to read you know i don't care i want <laughs> all of it every single uh,
1: interaction like this it also always gets me when robin says there's no need to thank her because she's enjoyed it and the, just that last little bit of i've loved it actually and how he hadn't heard the catch in her voice so <Yeah>. I just remember dying reading this because I was starting to worry at this point that it might leave us on a cliffhanger, you know, or that we wouldn't see her staying until the next book. So I'm glad we did.
3: My question is, what kind of scene do you think that we might get to mirror this at the end of book seven? If this is mm. like ring structure, because yeah. we have to get one, something with an expensive gift and making <laughs> things permanent, like, mm. hmm. Mm. I
1: think I see where you're going with this.
3: <laughs> how? It was so subtle. Uh, yeah. I think
1: a proposal is a really good guess. Yeah. I, mm. I mean, I know we talk a lot about them getting married in seven, but uh. do I actually think it mm, depends mm. on how the black heart goes, but yeah. I agree with you that a proposal would fit this very well. Super would. Yeah. And then, okay, so he brings out the very badly wrapped dress and this whole thing is so wonderful. Him being alarmed yet touched that she has tears running down her cheeks. And then he tries to tell her to open it at home because, you know, it's kind of an intimate gift. I get why
3: he'd say that. It's interesting to me that he says this because if she opened it at home, she'd be opening it when they would never see each other again, right? Or at least that's what he thinks. So... She'd never be able to thank him for the gift. He'd never know that she likes it. I don't know. I'm just glad she ignored him.
1: Well, she could have texted him. True. I don't know. I guess this makes sense to me as an extreme introvert who sometimes often feels awkward about opening gifts. So I get it. And I think that's why, you know, he didn't want all of the unspoken things being obvious. Mm. Although I don't think they were to her at this point. No. Do you think that the fact that the package was literally coming apart in her hands was because Robin was so excited to open it? Or is it just that badly wrapped?
2: (laughs) We are are going back to men being bad at wrapping again, are we?
1: (laughs) I think he also shoved it away to hide. So maybe he damaged it further. You know, but I guess I'm just curious about it because I like the idea of Robin being so excited about it. But maybe it's a little bit both.
0: In boutiques, they usually put it in a nice box, put it in paper, and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I'm not really sure how it ended up this way.
3: Also, a little thing I note here it's interesting that the dress slithers onto the desk. Mm. More snake imagery right there.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. But this time he does get to keep her. Oh, my God. And I just love the emotion that Robin is showing here. So not mm-hmm. only before opening the dress, but then the full-on tears and the incomprehensible words. And the heavy emotion came after him saying that she had been incredible and that her new place is lucky to have her. So, again, love languages, yeah. right? again, this yeah. is right. Oh, my God. She's going to cry when he tells her he loves her. Oh, my God.
2: Oh, stop. We, we all will, won't we? Stop.
3: Stop. I'm crying just... Thinking about uh, cease and desist immediately. Yes.
1: (laughs) I seem to remember a lot of my initial feelings when I first read this chapter because I was thrilled to read that both Strike and Robin had been trying to figure out
3: how she could stay. I mean, how cute is that? It's adorable. Knowing that Strike was lying awake at night doing math in his head and, and that Robin was in tears at the thought of leaving him. I feel like that illustrates how strongly they both feel already, because that's, that's a lot. After not a very long amount of time. Yeah. I feel like he could have added the 3,000 pounds that he spent <laughs> on that dress to her possible salary, but mm-hmm. I guess it's just too important to him that he give her that gift to express his emotions. He could have bought that dress before
1: lying awake at night, but- Yeah, I would never want a scenario where he doesn't buy that dress. So I'm not
3: entertaining that thought. (laughs) Yeah, me too.
0: Okay, so I'm already mad at Matthew on Robin's behalf. Like he's over here acting like he's okay with Robin wanting to stay with Strike and continue to work there. And like he's definitely not going to spend the next few years complaining about the amount of money that she does or doesn't bring in.
3: Matthew is such an asshole. He knows what the right thing to say is. But he clearly hates saying it. And he doesn't actually mean it. It always makes me laugh when Robin thinks that surely Matthew would like
1: Strike if he met him. <laughs>
2: oh.
1: Kyla oh. comes back to
2: her childhood and being the person who bridges those gaps yeah. in conflict. Yeah. You know, she likes them both. Why can't they like each other?
3: I can't wait to get to the scene of them actually meeting in Silkworm because it's yes. one of my favorites. It's <laughs> yeah, so awkward.
1: I hope we just get a scene where Strike actually says so that Robin can hear like, oh, that asshole.
3: You know? Yes. Something. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want that so much. Yeah, it'd be fun.
0: Wouldn't have done it while they were together, but oh, now that you're not. Well, yeah, exactly.
3: Now they're divorced. I feel like it's fair game to call Matthew an asshole. Yeah, out loud. absolutely.
0: So there was only one tiny fly in the ointment so what do you guys see as being the fly in the ointment is it Matthew strikes
1: attraction to Robin what do you guys think it is oh 100% I think this is his attraction to her Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't even just say attraction because if the only thing strike liked about Robin was that she was attractive I don't think this would be a big deal it's what is that line you know that she has the ability to disturb his equilibrium Okay. I think that he knows that she's a woman that he could seriously fall for. And that's
3: bad to strike at this point. Yeah, totally agree. Like we know now that he's been trying not to fancy her since the very first mm-hmm. moment she took her coat off. He's recognized, as you said, Linz, the danger that she represents. There's the potential for a lot more than just, oh, she's hot, you know?
1: Yeah. How do you mean Matthew Kent? Because the only way I could see Matthew fitting was how he gives Robin a hard time about her job but i think he's more robin's fly yeah that makes sense uh, matthew's just always seemed like an obstacle
0: between the two of them so he seemed like a good enough contender for me to be fulfilled the role of ointment fly
1: <laughs> yeah well he's definitely a fly i just think at this point especially this early on strike is determined that nothing will ever come of his attraction to her so matthew is like the opposite of an obstacle to him right now
0: Robin being so buoyant because of Strike offering to keep her on at the rate she suggested that she sounds happy to hear from Gillespie is both funny and very cute. It's just the start of the rest of their working lives together.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it really does echo that first chapter for me where it feels like the beginning of something all over again. And also, Robin gets a call from Gillespie on her first Day two, doesn't she?
3: So another ring. Yes, I feel like that ring with Gillespie showing up at both the beginning of the end is a clue that he is significant. Like he's in that latch for a reason.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Speaking of Gillespie, here's what Robin says to him: "Mister Strike's just sent you a check. I put it in, in the post myself this morning. All the arrears, yes, and a little bit more. Oh no, Mister Strike's adamant he wants to pay off the loan. Well, that's very kind of Mister Rugby, but Mister Strike would rather pay." He's hopeful he'll be able to clear the full amount within the next few months. Now, Lindsay, you mentioned this quote in the post that you and Pools did on the website about Gillespie being the man that killed Leda. Do you want to talk briefly about how this relates to that theory?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know I already mentioned this theory before, but I think this is an important piece of the puzzle. So all this time, we've been led to believe that Rokeby is the one pushing for that money back. Strike says it, Lucy says it, but I don't think that either of them are very reliable narrators on this point. So you know, strike because of his anger towards Rokeby and Lucy, because I don't think she knows anything about this money. But the important thing here is when Robin says, well, that's very kind of Mr. Rokeby, but Mr. Strike would rather pay. I think we are led to believe that this was Rokeby having a change of heart now that strike has become famous. But I think knowing what we know after Trouble blood, this now reads to me that Gillespie was the one pushing for repayment the whole time. It could be that
3: Strike's new fame has made Rokeby take an interest, whereas Mm -hmm. before, Gillespie's been able to get away with pushing for this money under the radar because Rokeby's not paying attention, right? But if Rokeby's looking that way now, then- Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've moved on to Strike
1: at his appointment for his leg, and he thinks about how if he had known that Robin was going to stay, that he would have never given her the dress. And it just always makes me laugh. I think it's definitely because he knows what the dress is saying, that he- thought she had looked gorgeous and wanted her to know it you know how do you guys interpret that
3: absolutely yes (laughs) that's what I love about this series he doesn't spell it out now but Mm -hmm. four books later we get the message that he intended the dress to send. And that yeah. that was not a platonic message, right? Not entirely <laughs> no. platonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I also
1: really like when he says that the gift would not, he was sure, find favor with Matthew, especially once he had seen her in it and heard that she previously modeled it for Strike. I have to admit, you know, there's a part of me that understands Matthew on this. Mm-hmm. Strike knows that when Matthew sees how gorgeous she looks in that dress, he's going to be thinking, and another man, bought this
3: for you and you tried it on for
1: him
4: (laughs) what
3: yeah I feel like Matthew not liking strike giving her this dress is one of his more reasonable reactions in these novels because he's a shit yeah but I think that most men would be a bit put out by Mm. another guy giving their fiance a gift like this and then their fiance loving it
4: yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Sam, would you feel
3: like this is sus? Yeah,
2: I don't think I'd feel too comfortable with that. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so.
1: I also love that Robin's a bit naive about it because I don't think that she's understanding Strike's message at this point.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Where do we hear that she had excitedly showed Matthew and then she saw his face, oh you know, <laughs> she's kind of oblivious to all of that right now and her excitement over the dress and staying. It's really fun. Yeah. Here's another full circle or ring moment where the magazine private eye is mentioned again. So we get it in the prologue and the epilogue.
0: As strike limped after the doctor, a phrase floated up out of his subconscious. A phrase he had read long before he had seen his first dead body, or marveled at a waterfall in an African mountainside, or watched the face of a killer collapsing as he realized he was caught. I am become a name. Now, the full context for this phrase, which comes from Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, is this, I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone, on shore and when, through scudding drifts, the rainy Hyades, vexed the dim sea, I am become a name. Love it. And I also wanted to take a second to plug a really excellent article that Beatrice Groves did regarding what this phrase means, and I'll throw it in the show notes if any of you guys want to read it. Essentially, Dr. Groves says, and this is a a quotation from the article, is the quotation implicitly suggests that in his new job, Strike has successfully created what Tennyson's Ulysses longs to, a new version of his old heroic life. Now the article is well worth the read. And like I was mentioning, it will be in the show notes if you want to check it out. I'm not sure if you've read it polls, but this article links in some awesome references to the Odyssey that I really think that you'll like if you want to talk about it.
3: I love this poem so much and how it's used here to end the novel. I could go on and on about it. I'm about to, I don't know who I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm about to go completely off on this. The quote itself, I am become a name that first surfaces in his head, it obviously comes to mind because of his newfound fame. Mm-hmm. And the phrase is really interesting because I think that Beatrice Groves notes this as well, but there's a sort of hollowness and emptiness to it because if you're a name, then what else are you? The parts of you that aren't the name are lost to other people's vision. So in becoming a name, you become just a name to so many people. And in their eyes, you're both somehow more and less than human at the same time if you know what I mean. I just feel like it's the start of the running theme of the effects of fame in these novels. It's really good. So then we go from just the one line to the full excerpt from the poem that he remembers. And I feel like these lines are so appropriate to where Strike's at, because it particularly speaks to his past, because he's suffered and he's known joy. He's been loved and he's been alone. He's pursued this quest wherever it led him. The quest is justice. But there's also this excerpt, it evokes a sense of the future, right? He can't rest. He's going to forge ahead on this path. But even more appropriate is that this poem is spoken by Odysseus. Ulysses is, of course, the Latin name for Odysseus. And I've spoken before about how I believe that Troubled Blood is a retelling of the Odyssey with both Robin and Strike conquering the different dangers that Odysseus faced on his way home. And that Corman and Robin in the end of Troubled Blood come home to each other. So I feel like framing Strike as Odysseus here totally supports that theory, right? So there's that. But then there's another thing I sort of picked up from this poem. And it's the way that Ulysses or Odysseus is discontented with his sort of stable, secure life. He's not happy sitting on the throne of Ithaca as king. The poem starts out with these lines. It little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags matched with an aged wife I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. So that's how the poem opens. First of all. (laughs) Isn't this what Strike is building with his agency? Like having a group of subcontractors that he directs from the partner's desk with his queen? But second of all, I feel like this sense of discontent sort of speaks to Strike's fear of what would happen if he committed to Robin. That he'd lose his independence and his freedom. That he'd be responsible for another person and he's afraid of that. When Ulysses leaves on on the journey on the sea at the end of this poem, he's actually leaving to meet his death as is prophesied in the Odyssey. And I I feel like Strike is going to discover that the thing he feared, losing his independence and freedom, feeling discontented as an idol king, is actually a source of of safety for him. That he's going to end up being happier than he could have expected. That the ending of the poem Ulysses will be upended and that Strike will rest from traveling in a way. Of course, he's still going to seek justice. He's just going to do that from his throne slash desk. With his queen slash partner. And then there yeah. are the final lines of the poem, which are just so striking Robin that it hurts to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. That's them, right? hundred yeah. percent. I don't know if any of that made sense, but it's kind of what I was, I was feeling.
1: Yeah, of course it does. I think you nailed it. I don't have anything intelligent to add.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really cool. It's good that it's something that you're so passionate about. And to put that much thought into it I think is is awesome
0: so we finally finished the book what are our final thoughts and do we have any favorite parts that we want to share
1: oh I mean well obviously I I love this book shocking I don't think that after reading it for the first time that I ever thought that I'd be here this obsessed (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know I also have to say that I think I enjoy these earlier books more now than I initially did and part of that I think is getting away from My own PI job. But I think most of it is just the treasures that you find when rereading a J.K. Rowling novel, especially a series. Yeah. And my favorite part, the Drunk Strike chapter, because I always love when they open up to each other. That's kind of a theme for me. So each book, that's my favorite
3: part. I totally agree. I really enjoyed this book when I first read it, but I enjoy it so much more now, going back to read it after seeing how far they've Mm -hmm. come by Troubled Blood, because it just makes everything hit harder and feel more significant you know because you also get to see the fun that Rowling had planting the seeds in their relationship with all the foreshadowing and all of the absolutely hilarious dramatic irony it just makes it such a joyful read now even more so than when it first came out my favorite part obviously all of the usual suspects drop strike Vashti the green dress I think Mm -hmm. that actually The opening thoughts of Robin and Strike in the beginning of the book are now my absolute favorite just because I have so much fun giggling at how incredibly wrong (laughs) they are. Like they don't even know and it's delicious. (laughs) I love
4: it.
3: You say they don't even know, but we don't even
1: know the things that we're going to read again in this book when we get later books. Yeah,
2: It's great, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) This was and is one of my favorite books in the series. I just like the whole story and everything that kind of makes it up. It's a proper murder mystery, which I absolutely love. It's the characters that kind of finish it all off. It's great reading back and kind of seeing their relationship and how it starts. And even this early on, seeing them solve the case together and everything that's going to encompass moving forward, I think is great
0: my thoughts on Cuckoo's Calling are much the same as as y'all's. You know, especially coming back, like you were saying, Fools, after, you know, having read Troubled Blood, going back and seeing all of this stuff again and knowing what some of this stuff means to them years yeah. and years on really makes rereading this again so much more rewarding. Sometimes I can have little bit more difficulty rereading the earlier books just because you know there's not as much strike and robin stuff but just getting to reread it now it rewards on every reread and my for my favorite parts they're all the same the green dress the drunk strike i think i'll throw in there you know just to break it up a little bit we can say the swimming scene
1: (laughs) that's not my leg
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that too those are special runners up
1: i guess we should say thank you to everyone listening for yeah. sticking with us through this book and for being understanding about the fact that we're going to take a bit of a break until the ink black hearts and then yeah. you know before we end the episode we do have another predictions episode coming up that we want to do after we get that synopsis and We really can't say when that will be because it just depends on when that's released, but we're all hoping that it's soon.
0: Fingers crossed.
1: Fingers crossed. Yeah. Please feel free to send us new predictions you have, especially after that's released. Mm -hmm. And thanks for joining us, Sam, this episode and all the other ones you've been on. No, it's been great.
2: (laughs) It's always super fun. So thank you for having me.
1: People are always excited when Sam is on. (laughs) Sam has fans. That'll do it for
0: this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This concludes our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling. We can't begin to convey just how grateful we are that all of you have continued to stick with us through both of these rereads. So once the synopsis and the cover have been released, you can expect to see another episode covering our final predictions for the Ink Black Heart as well as a blooper reel for this season. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SC Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes, as well as any new blog posts on our website as well. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always visit our website at the scfilespod.com or email us directly at scfilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike in the Ellicott Files.